Mindfulness Mode 295. If you're determined to be a good husband, you're going to have an unhappy wife. And if you're determined to be a good mother, you're going to have an unhappy child. Welcome to the Mindfulness Mode podcast. I'm your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks for joining us here. If you enjoy today's show, would you please hit subscribe on whatever app you're using to listen to this show on? That would help me so much, help the show so much. And I'd appreciate if you left a message on the website after you hear today's show. That website is mindfulnessmode.com. I'll read your comment on an upcoming show. Here's one I just received in January. My listener, Queen Sawyer, wrote, I love this podcast and love the tips for mindfulness I can use in my daily life. I also really enjoy Bruce's interviewing style and the guests he brings on the show. So thanks, Queen Sawyer, for those comments. Today, wisdom to live by. Wise thoughts, a completely mindful realm of ideas. That's what's in store for you as you listen to today's episode. If you're anything like me, you'll think about Rabbi Friedman's interview for days to come. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the pure mindfulness of today's guest. Hey, Mindful Tribe, this is going to be a very enlightening, enlightening conversation, in my opinion. We're talking about intimacy, and I'm honored to have a special guest, a world-renowned author, Rabbi Friedman, with me today. Rabbi Friedman, are you in mindfulness mode today? What? (laughs) (laughs) You seem mindful. Would you say you're in mindfulness mode today? Well... Certainly not mindless. <laughs> well, that's good. Mindful is is ambitious. It is true. I'd like to share a little bit about you before we get into our conversation. Rabbi Manus Friedman, like I said, is a world-renowned author. He's a counselor, a lecturer, and a philosopher. Rabbi Friedman uses ancient wisdom and modern wit as he captivates audiences around the country and the world. Over 150,000 copies of his provocative yet entertaining tapes have been sold. And his first book, Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore, was published back in 1990 and it was widely praised and is currently in its fourth printing. Rabbi Friedman is a noted biblical scholar He's recognized for his deep grasp of Jewish mysticism and a professionally ranked member of the National Speakers Association. Rabbi Friedman has recently released a new book titled The Joy of Intimacy, a soulful guide to love, sexuality, and marriage. So Rabbi Friedman, I'm so thrilled that you're here. What does mindfulness mean to you? I think mindfulness is really uh, synonymous with life itself. If you're not mindful, you're not living. You're just existing. You're just surviving. You know, you haven't been hit by a truck, so you're still here. But that's not called living. Mindful is not an option. It's not like you can, you can live without it or you can live with it. it it's, it's synonymous with life. If you want to be alive, start paying attention. 
And in our society, and I think possibly a lot of this has to do with social media, don't you think a lot of us are just kind of running around in circles and we're not paying attention to life? Sadly, that is true because we're very enamored with the quality of our existence. We want to exist well and we forget to live. So for many of us, existing well means having that new car, that big home, all those material things. But that's not the answer, is it? Well, that is existence. And yes, we have a very comfortable existence compared to our grandparents and you know, other countries, other places around the world, we do have very comfortable, very nice existence. But the amount of effort we put into it and the amount of concern and anxiety over it just drains us of life. And is that why some people that I've talked to have become ultra successful when we're talking about money and material things. Others think of them as ultra successful and they get to a point where they break down in tears because they've worked so hard for those material things. And then suddenly they realize there must be more and they haven't discovered it. And they come to this crossroads. Is that why? It is the very successful who are most likely to get depressed because what is it all for? So as long as you're still trying to improve your existence, you're kind of distracted. Once your existence is good, it's like, oh, now what? What was it all for? So what is it all for? Ah, see, the other problem with uh, focusing on our existence is that two people focused on their existences cannot get along. It's just not possible. They certainly can't bond. Because when you're focused on your existence, it takes you into yourself and away from others. You become introverted in some way. And in order to connect to another person, uh, the only part of you that is flexible enough to thrive on the presence of another person is if you're both focused on living because life is flexible. Existence is rigid. Got too many rules. You got to have this house. You got to have that car. It's just too rigid. And, and it, it's, it carries over even into your personality. Like even success as a person is too materialistic. It's too much about existing. So, for example, people will be surprised and shocked to hear this. If you're determined to be a good husband, you're going to have an unhappy wife. And if you're determined to be a good mother, you're going to have an unhappy child. Because if you're trying to be good at something, you're too busy with yourself. That makes sense? It does make sense, but it sounds like the complete opposite would be true. Yes, and that's why well-intentioned people spend their lives trying to be good at something and can't figure out why it's not working. Don't, don't be a good mother. Just take care of your child. 
Don't be a good wife or a good husband. Just be good to the person you're married to. Because I hear so many men who decide that they're going to be good husbands, you know, from now on. <laughs> now I'm going to become a good husband, whether she likes it or not, because I'm going to be good at this. That's terrible. Don't be good at it. Be good to her. It's different. Mm. Like in marriage counseling, a guy says to me, can you tell me how do I make my wife happy? You're asking me? You know where she lives. Ask her. <laughs> <laughs> she probably knows what would make her happy. So here he's trying to be a perfect husband, but it doesn't occur to him to ask her what she wants. So he'll decide what she wants. He'll give it to her, expecting her to be happy. She's miserable because he doesn't hear her at all, and he doesn't understand. How can you not be happy with such a good husband? We've only hit about the five-minute mark, and you've already told us such pro profound information. You've said that we're in an intimacy crisis. Tell us about that. And I think you already have told us some yes. of the things about that. I know that, but can you expand on it? The definition of intimacy, which we desperately need because, you know, we use the word carelessly or we don't use the word at all. The definition of intimacy is two people connecting to each other with nothing between them. They're not joining in common interest in a third thing. It's not like they both love pina colada and walks in the rain. And it's not that they both love tennis. And it's not that they both love love. Those are things. Get them out of the way and connect to each other. It sounds almost mystical to people in a materialistic society. So a guy says to me, you know, I love everything about my wife. And I say, that's nice. Do you love her? Yes, I love everything about her. He says, that's not what I asked you. Do you love her? He says, what about her? You <laughs> see, we can't even get to her. It doesn't even make sense to the modern mind. What is her without something? What about her? That's not intimacy. Intimacy means she. You want her in your life. For what? For nothing. For her. Not a thing. So the bumper sticker should be, nothing you get from your spouse is as important as your spouse. But that's not happening. We're relating to each other by agreeing on something that we share. Like, for example, and here's another shocker. Don't marry for love. It, that, we've been doing that for 100 years. It's a terrible mistake. If you marry for money, everybody knows this is a bad idea. Like, for example, uh, I only loved you for your money 
now that you don't have money, I don't love you anymore. That's not precisely correct because you never loved me. You loved only the money. I loved the money. Yes. Loved the money. That makes so, sense. So did you marry me? No, married you married the money. the money. Right. Why is love any better? I married you for love, not for you. So if I'm not getting love, well, I don't need you. Where's the love? Show me the love. <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> so we are marrying love. We're not marrying the person we love. It's nope. not working. So how do we understand the difference if we haven't had that life experience? Like if I were 25 years old and you said this to me and I couldn't grasp it, how do I move forward? How do I try to grasp that without trying too hard? One of the ways that works in a religious setting, God created the world because he's God and he can do these kinds of things. But the real question is, why would he? We assume, of course, that God, by definition, is perfect. Perfect in every way. Eternal, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, right? Yes. And he creates a world for what? Why would somebody who's already perfect do anything? He's not missing anything. So people are always asking the question, what did God create the world for? And they never get a good answer because it's a trick question. God didn't create the world for something. He created the world to have someone. Huge difference. God is eternal, he is infinite, he is the only true existence, and before he created the world, there was just him being perfect. And for some divine reason, that was not, that was not satisfying. So God creates someone with freedom of choice to either love him back or hate him back to either acknowledge him or deny him. And that satisfies some divine appetite, some divine quality. That perfection does not satisfy. Is God the same God no matter what religion we are? Well, he should be. <laughs> he should be, and we should have no other gods before him. So. But well, we're talking about the creator of the universe, right? Right. Why would he create if he's already perfect? Now, here's the beautiful thing. If I need something from you, obviously I'm not perfect because I need something. But if I don't need anything from you, I just need you to be beside me so that I am not the only thing. That is not an imperfection. On the contrary, when I am perfect and need nothing, I stop being materialistic. Now I can genuinely need you 
just to have you. Because I don't need things. So I'm not going to love you for something. I'm not even going to love everything about you. I'm going to need you in my life in the same way that God needs us in his world. For what? Not for a what, for a who. So here's the beauty of it. If I genuinely need you in my life, not for something, just for you. And whatever reason, I can't have you. You're not available. What am I missing? If all I need is just you and I don't have you, what am I missing? I'm not missing anything. I miss you. That is not an imperfection. That's only possible when you're already perfect. So don't marry for love. And don't marry until you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And Or at you know, least you think you're perfect. <laughs> based on what you've said... Are you, would you consider yourself a minimalist? Because that seems to be a popular thing these days, you know, to become a minimalist. Uh, you could call it that. And, and, and in terms of the, the, the lifestyle that we live, it, it would be minimalist. Minimal things, like the comedian, you know, with the stuff. Yeah. Like too much stuff. So, yes, minimize the stuff. Simplify your life. But, but it's not, the goal is not to minimize. The goal is to get to the essence and not clutter and, and obscure the essence with stuff that is non-essential. But if I declutter my space, there's more chance I can get to what's essential. Is that true? Yes. Yes. That makes sense. So the less you worry about your existence, the more energy you have for living. And living, by definition, means not satisfying your needs, but being needed by someone else. Here's the, here's the crucial question, and I think mindfulness fits in perfectly. If you're focused on your needs, even legitimate needs, you are needy. When you're needy, you're not mindful. You're preoccupied. So the difference between living or just existing, existing means taking care of my needs. Living means knowing what I am needed for. And a human being in a mindful state would much rather be needed than have his needs fulfilled. I'd much rather do without, but know that I'm necessary to somebody than to not be necessary to anybody and have all my needs met. Yes. And that explains why you talk about having a deep, soulful and satisfying relationship and how that will come to us if we allow it to, 
It's not something that we can force or that we can follow this series of steps to make it happen. Right? So we just read in our weekly reading of the Bible, of the Torah, the event at Mount Sinai. God said to the people, gather at the foot of Mount Sinai and you will hear me give you the Ten Commandments, but you will not see me. Why was that? They could have seen God, but God said, no, no, no. Listen, hear me. See, there's the difference. When you see, you see something. The eye sees things. The eye sees existence. It doesn't see intimacy. It doesn't see life. You can stare at somebody for 10 years and have no idea who he is. You'll know a lot of things about him, size, color, shape. You won't know the person. So God says, if you saw me, you would get so excited, and then it'll fizzle out and we won't have a relationship. Seen that, you know, been there, done. I don't want you to see me. I want you to get to know me. So listen. Listening is much more personal than seeing. In a relationship, if we want it to be real, mindful, and therefore intimate, you got to hear each other. Don't look. There's nothing to see. Close your eyes. Turn the lights off. Then you'll be intimate. Great wisdom. And early on in the interview, in the first few sentences, I thought, oh, he's saying, be a better listener. And now <laughs> you've come out and you've said it in so many words. Which means, which means you were listening. <laughs> You're so wise. And I want to ask you, when you were a seven-year-old boy, what were the signs of your wisdom? What were the signs of what you would become? What kind of a child were you? Oh, that's a difficult question. But I, I read stories about great people, the great leaders of the past, the great rabbis of our, of our tradition. And I was very upset. I thought it was unfair that they, at seven years old, was so mature, and I was jealous. Ah. How did they do that? Now look, they lived in a time when you really didn't have a choice. You were either mature or you didn't survive. Oh. So, you know, that might explain it a little bit. Life was not frivolous as it is today for us. Their existence was minimal to begin with. They didn't have to minimize it. Yeah, that's a good point. And did you have to work to rid yourself of that jealousy or did it just fall away on its own? Well, I think it's a good thing. I, I'm going to stop being jealous of that. You, you have to be jealous of good things. Oh, good jealousy qualities. is a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Envy. It's enviable. That's how we move forward sometimes is having yes. that then. If you're envious of the right things, you're in good shape. If you're envious of the wrong things, terrible. Okay, that's, that's good, because I always thought jealousy and envy were not a particularly good thing to have. 
So that's a Gen different way of looking at it. Generally, you're right. But it must exist for some good purpose. Right. It's got to have its redeeming side as well. Rabbi Friedman, do you meditate? What does meditation look like in your life if that's something you do? I don't, I don't think I meditate. I space out. <laughs> Is that called meditating? It could be if you decide to call it that. What does yeah. it look like when you space out? Mindless. No, I, I don't. I don't meditate. There's a lot of studying, and that's that's a full time job. Studying. Of course, you have to reflect on what you've studied. You got to ruminate. You know, mm -hmm. chew your cud, because that's what makes an animal kosher. <laughs> So, what, so you have to chew your cud, but I don't know if that would be meditating. So spacing out for you is like chewing your cud. Is it like just stopping and not thinking about anything, not doing anything? I'm not proud of that. <laughs> no? no. Is it is it not a necessary part of being human? Maybe it's like you know taking a nap or something, taking a break, recess time. But that's, you know, that's not what we're, what we need to focus on or talk about. But meditating as, as such, not really. You've written a lot of books and you've helped a lot of people. When did you know that that's where you wanted your life's path to go? Well, being, being part of the Chabad Hasidic movement, you raised with the idea that if you're, if you're lucky enough, you will get an opportunity to serve your community, uh, create a community, and share what you've studied, what you've learned. And that's, that's life. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. So as soon as we got married, I started looking for where, what community I could offer my services to. And I ended up in uh, Minneapolis. Didn't know what the weather was. <laughs> <laughs> Found out the hard way. <laughs> well, you're in New York City. You still have some pretty harsh weather sometimes, don't you? Yes, I, I have a, an apartment here, but I live in Minnesota. Oh, do you? It's, okay. Yeah. I see. And the Vikings didn't make it, so such is life. But we do have the Super Bowl. Yes. Well, that's exciting for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have done so much in your life, and yet your wisdom flows so so easily, it seems. I'm, I'm just wondering how you continue to achieve, but you're not tied to that. You don't, it's not all about how much you've achieved, how much you've done, how much you've accumulated. It's more about how you can help other people. Is that right? That's the objective. And it just so happens that the way we are educated and the things that we study in Judaism and Hasidic teachings, they just become more and more relevant with every week. More and more people find themselves needing this information. It's, it's amazing. Right. It's 200 years old, and, and it's becoming more relevant. Yes. In fact, you're, you're in London, Ontario. Yes. One, one of my mentors, one of my inspirations, 
was Dr. Yitzhak Block at the University okay. of London, Ontario. Yeah, the University of Western Ontario, yes. Yes. He was a professor of um, Greek philosophy. Okay. But he was a delightful Hasidic Jew, which is an anomaly and, uh, and an inspiration to many. He passed away just recently. Oh. Well, you're known for your wit. And I'd love to hear your wit because I haven't watched your YouTube videos. I'm not aware of your wit so much. How does that flow out of you? How does your wit happen so that you're able to connect with people? Got to listen to some good comedians. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and pick up the style. and It's not intentional. It's, it's just who you are. Life is funny. What are you going to do? <laughs> you got to laugh. Someone recently told me funny is money. Is that true? Yeah, if you're desperate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but life is funny. And if you, can't, if you can't laugh at bad, then you're not really rejecting it. That makes sense? If I, if I rail against it, and I say, oh, this is so evil, this is so wrong, this is so bad, I'm, I'm obviously fighting it and rejecting it. Right. But not completely, because I'm still impressed by it, by how evil it is but it's impressing me or maybe depressing me. Well, that's what I think when I go on social media and I see all this uh, conversation about your president and I think, okay, you're making this bigger than it even is already. And if you can't see the humor in it, you're missing yes. something. <laughs> yes, because there's more humor than there's ever been, isn't there? So the only time you're really past the negativity is when you can laugh at it and find it funny. Okay. Then you've gotten above it. But as long as you're intimidated by it or it intimidates you, yes. it's too powerful. I mean, not, not that you shouldn't be serious about crime. <laughs> of course. But, but the whole negativity around it, uh, the ugliness, the whatever, you know, Yes. Like, for example, and I haven't, I haven't said this yet uh, in any public forum, this whole scandal with harassment in the workplace, at the university and school, we shouldn't get distracted and labor under the false impression that the men who molest women or harass women is because they don't respect women. And that women have to become more powerful, um, harsher, scarier, so that men will not uh, take liberties with them. That's, that's a misreading of the whole problem. Many of the men who are accused of, of these behaviors do respect women, and they're good to women. So when you ask them, well then, why do you do what you do? The inappropriate touching, the inappropriate language. The in and their answer is, it's harmless. It's nothing. Sure, yeah. In other words, it's not that they lack respect for women. 
they lack respect for intimacy. They do not respect intimacy. And so they take liberties with partial intimacies, occasional intimacies, unintentional intimacies. We need more respect for intimacy, not for each other. It would be terrible if men and women became even more estranged because, you know, we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing, and then all of a sudden we'll just go our separate ways and never talk to each other at all. Right. We're already too much that way. Yeah. And that's because we've lowered the bar on the sanctity of intimacy. It's okay to touch a woman if the occasion invites intimacy. The argument that a touch is not intimate, that's where the problem is. Because if you knew how intimate it was, you wouldn't do it. But decent guys wouldn't do it. And you're sharing all of this wisdom in your book, The Joy of Intimacy, right? Um, I think it's reached a crisis proportion where even happily married couples will admit that there are moments and not infrequent where they feel all alone in the world, despite the relationship, despite the friendships, despite the fact that we're all so social, so cosmopolitan, you know, we party all the time, we have connections, we have the internet, we have the, you know, and in a quiet moment, you're all alone in the world. And marriage, by definition, should cure that from the first day. Being married, you know, coming off the, uh, the, the ceremony, means you will never be alone again, even if you're separated by an ocean. If that doesn't happen, something is seriously wrong. Mm. I, I read that we're in England, the government is opening a new division in the health department specifically to deal with the problem of loneliness because it's a health hazard. People who feel alone don't do well physically. Their immune system shuts down. Yes. And it's, and it's reached such a crisis in, in, in England. I'm, I'm sure it's true here too. Yes. It's a health hazard. You're not living as long as you should, not because you're not jogging, but because you're alone. Yes. I think a lot of seniors in particular have that issue, yeah, but I yeah. think of all ages, people have that. Seniors is notorious. People are neglected and so on. But when, when in the past did a married couple, happily married, feel alone? Each one of them felt alone in the world. That means that even in your most private, your most, your most, what should be intimate moments, you're not, you're not achieving intimacy. You can be having great sex that doesn't bond you. That's not intimate. That's two people 
enjoying themselves spontaneous uh, in synchronous in uh, what is it called in what it's synchronized pleasure right but, in sync but, with the other person yes and each one is experiencing themselves so it's not about the other person it's about me it's me it's me i want to receive that pleasure well in in the height of pleasure you are so aware of yourself that nobody else exists right so we got to find something better than um, mechanical sex, no matter how pleasurable that is. Our grandparents had that. They didn't have a lot of things, and they didn't do much for each other, but they had each other. They were bonded. I feel like to- I... <laughs> I feel so honored to be talking with you because not only is this wisdom wonderful to hear, but it's not something that you hear very often. We don't hear this kind of viewpoint from very many people. So I'll tell you something really funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can see I have a rather long beard. I can, yes. Some guy comes over to me and says, I'm just curious. When you sleep, do you sleep with your beard on top of the blanket or under the blanket? Now, I had never thought of that. But since he asked me that, I can't sleep. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I'm so self-conscious. Like, I try it above the blanket, and I don't know. And I tried under the blanket. I, I, I don't know. And it, it just ruined my sleep. Oh, no. I hope that doesn't become an ongoing problem. I'll I'll find some therapy. (laughs) (laughs) You need therapy. (laughs) (laughs) So, but the same thing in much more serious uh, context. The magazines that ask you, are you having uh, the best sex you can have? That is so destructive. And all of a sudden, you know, like nobody knows. Oh, I don't know. Am I? (laughs) Exactly. Am I supposed to know? I'm probably not. That's it. We're getting divorced. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to find something better. (laughs) What did you you just do? We shouldn't be so self-conscious about the performance. Mm. We should revel in the pleasure of having each other. That's marriage. And that takes mindfulness. To have sex, you don't have to even have a brain. (laughs) True. True. Well, you know, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Rabbi Friedman. And the first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Uh, Well, one person was Professor Dr. Yitzhak Block of London, Ontario. He was definitely a an inspiration. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Emotions are a direct outgrowth of your intelligence. The way you think is the way you feel. The way you understand is the way you emote. If you have a very quick mind, you're going to have a very... Um, high energy emotions 
You're going to be quick in your re emotional responses, just as your mind is quick in the pickup. You know, and the, if you're slow and thorough in your thinking, your emotions will also be a little more sluggish, a little more patient, a little more thorough. If um, if you get a lot of pleasure from learning, from understanding, from using your mind, you will have more pleasure in your emotions. So it's a direct reflection of what's going on in the brain. That's why if you want to improve your emotions, don't sit there trying to change your heart. Change the input in your brain and you'll get a different output in the heart. Ah, change the input in your brain and you'll have a different output from your heart. Like, for example, a person has a terrible temper uh -huh. and he's not happy about it. He wants to he wants to control his temper. So what is he going to do? Bite his tongue, force himself to remain silent, run out of the room before he gets angry. You sit down and you say, what am I going to get angry about? Because I think that this deserves an angry reaction. Put together a list of things. And then get angry only for those things that are on your list. I tried this with a group of people. They sat there with a pen, thinking, 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 and I said, I can't think of anything I should get angry about. <laughs> so you see, when your brain tells you what's what, your emotions will follow. Right. So a very painful example. This guy tells me that uh, he just can't get along with his wife. She drives him crazy and just makes him angry all the time. Uh-huh. In fact, there was a time when uh, she got him so angry that he hit her. Oh. I said, with a bat? Oh, he says, I lost control and I hit her. Uh -huh. I said, you hit her with a bat? He said, oh, come on, don't be crazy. I said, so you didn't really lose control. Even at your angriest, hit her with a bat? Are you crazy? Right? Yeah. So his mind would not permit that thought. Right. And therefore, it will never happen. But he did give himself permission in his mind to slap her. So he did. He didn't lose control. He chose how much anger he would allow himself to express. Of course, he was wrong. Yes. But, but the mistake was in his brain, not in his anger. His mind told him, a slap once in a while is not so terrible. Mm. That's where the problem lies. Right. See, and the same thing is true with the molestation and the harassment. They're convinced that it's okay because it's not really intimate. I'm not imposing myself on you. It's just mm. a touch, a look, a word. It's nothing. Right. It's not nothing. It's a yes. very significant thing. A touch between two people is not nothing. Right. And if it wasn't invited, then it's abuse. Right, right. Tell us how breathing 
is part of your mindfulness. I find that if you don't breathe, it's hard to think. <laughs> it really is. You just yeah, right. feel this tension and this anxiety, yeah. don't you? And sometimes yeah. I get in that place. I'm like, why am I feeling this way? Oh, because I'm barely breathing. The brain needs oxygen. Yes. So if you could recommend a book sort of about mindfulness, what book would that be? Uh, you can start with the Bible. It's a very mindful book. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of one at the moment, but any, any book based on tradition is mindful. Any book based on experimentation is frivolous. After thousands of years of history, we don't need to experiment. Mm. I mean, have, have we learned nothing? Many of us have not. <laughs> but, but historically or collectively, right. we've, ha we've had the smartest people, the greatest geniuses, the greatest works. Why isn't anybody paying attention to that? Why do you have to explore outer space to find out what life on Earth is all about? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, if you could share an app which helps you to be more mindful or maybe some of the people you work with, what app comes to mind? An app? Is that a website? Well, for a lot of people, that would be a tool on a smartphone or on an iPad. There are tools that help people to slow down, to think more clearly, some would say. There are so many resources. Yes. Maybe even too many. Yeah. But the real problem is not that we don't have resources. The problem is motivation. The problem is being convinced that morality, honesty, and all that is really necessary. Once, once you're convinced that it's really necessary, you will find the apps and you will find the books and you will find the mentors and the teachers. They're everywhere. But you, you need to want it. You need to look for it. So the real question is, how do we motivate ourselves to want it? We'll, we'll always find it. But where, where is the compulsion? Where is the conviction that this, this has to be? You know, everybody agrees, I'd love to be mindful. That's not good enough. No. You have to be convinced that you're supposed to be mindful, that you need to be mindful. It's not an option. It's not a luxury. It's a, it's a definition of life. I'm going to put more information in the show notes about your books and particularly about your new book, The Joy of Intimacy, which is filled with so much wisdom. And thank you for that. And as we wrap up the interview, Rabbi Friedman, how can we learn more about you and learn more about what you do and how you help people? Now, if you go online, aside from reading the book, or the first book, Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? Uh, if you go online, it's goodtoknow.org. 
it's good to know.org. Easy to remember because it really is good to know. <laughs> it really is, yes. Yeah, it's good to know because that controls your emotions and that puts you in the right place in your brain and everything follows. So it's good to know.org and that'll send you to almost every speech or talk and article that I've ever produced. Right. And I see on social media, you're under your first name and your last name, Manis Friedman, M-A-N-I-S-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. So on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Manis Friedman. So check that out. And thank you for your new book, The Joy of Intimacy. And thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode. I truly appreciate having the honor of spending time with you. It was a pleasure. In fact, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Yes, let's. Even without a new book. <laughs> All the very best to you. And uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please subscribe and leave a comment on the bottom of the episode on my website. That's mindfulnessmode.com. I'll mention you in an upcoming episode. Remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.